Broadcasting from an undisclosed location, you are about to join the leader of the unofficial resistance, the rebel himself, Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. Everybody is to leave here immediately. This cafe is closed until further notice. Clear the room at once. Close me up. On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. That's Captain Renault from Casablanca. You know that scene, uh, the, the the police captain going into Rick's cafe and talking about how shocked he is that that there's gambling going on in this establishment. It's kind of how I feel about Bill Blair coming out as a liberal. Bill Blair is someone that, if you've paid any attention to Toronto politics, and let's face it, the police chief of Toronto is such a larger-than-life figure and the media is so concentrated in Toronto that you're going to hear from Bill Blair whether you live in the big smoke or not. So this guy coming out and saying that he is, in fact, a liberal is the least shocking thing that I've heard in quite some time. He has campaigned on on legalizing marijuana. He has campaigned for the gun registry. He was a little bit quiet on prostitution. So I don't know how he's going to uh, line up with his newfound friend and party, Justin Trudeau, and the Liberals there. But I do know a man that knows Bill Blair rather well, Joe Warmington's columnist for the Toronto Sun, and he knows all the players in the big smoke. He joins me now on the line. Joe, uh, Bill Blair, what do I need to know about this guy that, that I can't just assume from watching him for the last 10 years uh, on the media stage? Well, naked ambition is the one thing that you must know about Bill Blair. And that, you know, again, he will shoot for the very top. And that's why he achieves so much. And so nothing that you've said in the preamble surprises me about him being a liberal. I know that the conservatives were interested in him running for them as well uh, because of the name recognition. And he is bigger than life. He's a very, very big presence. Uh, But he's a liberal. And you alluded to a couple of those things uh, that were very big earlier, the gun registry being one of them, and uh, fighting the Harper government on that. You know, the prostitution thing, I don't know where he stands on it, uh, but I think he's very liberal on all those things, including the marijuana. So, you know, he's where he needs to be, and, uh, you know, he didn't tell anybody that uh, prior to 1201, uh, (laughs) following retiring at 11.59, so it didn't take him long to show his true political colors. Well, and, and I think his true political colors were shown in who we decided to let know first. It wasn't you, it wasn't CFRB or News Talk 1010, it wasn't AM640. Who did he go to? He went to the Toronto Red Star and gave an interview to the newspaper that was started with the sole purpose, of, and it remains the, the, the purpose of the Toronto Star, to be a an organ for the Liberal Party, so not much of a shocker yeah. there. Oh, well, you noticed. Uh, you know, it was interesting because I actually managed to get an hour off. Uh, it was late Saturday night, and I headed over to my local pub, uh, you know, just to get a, hear some live music and forget about all this stuff, and lo and behold, I started getting emails. And you know, within 10 minutes, I realized that it wasn't people telling me this fresh. It was up on the Star website. I saw a great scoop for Bruce Campion-Smith, who's a, a great reporter. I think he's out of Ottawa, which yeah, is no. also symbolic in its he, own way because it shows you it came out of the Trudeau 
people. It didn't it, come it, out of it, Bill Blair himself. It did. I noted that. Uh, I know Bruce. He's uh, been in the press gallery longer than I have, so no, I've known him for the last 10 years. But uh, when I saw that it was his byline on it, I thought, yeah, that is strange. Why wouldn't he go to – he's going to the Toronto Star. That's symbolic. Uh, why not go to a, a Toronto-based reporter and sit down with them and talk about why he wants to represent the people of Toronto? Uh, you know, I don't know if Bruce is from Toronto, but he hasn't lived there in a long time. If he is, he's an Ottawa guy now, like I am. And uh, and so there's, you're right. I think that's coming out of Team Trudeau tr- wanting to make sure, which is odd because there's another there's another guy well known in the region. Vying for this nomination in Scarborough Southwest, guy named Tim Weber used to be on CFTO TV. That's the local CTV affiliate, which is the most watched newscasts in Canada. No, that's right. Tim Weber is the, uh, and there's a uh, three other people also running for the nomination. They talk about it being democratic. I guess it isn't. You see the uh, the chief uh, with um, Young Trudeau uh, today. So. Obviously, it's a different kind of democracy for these people when it comes to how they select their uh, local representatives, and I think that that's very, very interesting. I also think that, you know, you alluded to the star thing. We understand that. The star has also been very critical of Chief Blair on G20. They have overlooked that. Uh, and, and the like of that, and, you know, the other thing is that well, Blair... Hold, he did, hold, on, hold on a minute. Let's yeah. talk about that G20 thing for a minute. Sure. Because, you know, you've got all kinds of liberals upset at, at Stephen Harper over Bill C-51, which uh, has a lot of judicial oversight or requirements for warrants within it, it with all these new powers for police. Uh, and people are angry about that, but it was Bill Blair that lobbied for those special powers, and he lobbied not 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 Ottawa, but the Ontario Liberals and Dalton McGuinty to pass secret legislation to give them special powers during the G20. You show up at the fence, and you don't tell them or show your ID, they could arrest you without charge. That That's not very liberal. Yeah, there's a lot of other things, too, at G20, and I wrote about a lot of it, as you know, and Basically, it was the biggest abridgment against people's rights, basic charter rights in the history of the country. It was an ugly, ugly weekend. The cover-up was uglier. Bill Blair wears 90% of it. He's never apologized for any of it. Uh, you talked to the 240 young women that were strip-searched and also shackled for 48 hours, and they weren't allowed to go to the bathroom, no water, no bread. For what? For what did they do? They were environmental kind of protesters that were in an area that was designated for them to protest. But if they had an earring in their nose or purple in their hair or wearing a black shirt or a uh, knapsack, they got taken down and there was no discussion. There was none of this, uh, you know what, they were told this isn't Canada anymore. And you know, it wasn't that weekend. It wasn't. Well, you you and I were both down there. And and I remember walking the streets of Toronto. I was inside the, the compound where the leaders were for part of the day. I think the first day was the Friday, right? And that's when everyone rampaged. Yeah. Okay, so whatever, whether it was Thursday or Friday, I was there for the first day and walking the streets, and I couldn't believe the cops were doing nothing. And then the next day is when they made all these arrests and went completely the opposite. All of that is on Bill Blair's watch. And there's been documentation to show that there was an order with him in the room saying to take back the streets. And I was on the street. It was actually on the Saturday when a lot of this stuff happened. It turned on the Friday night. But the Saturday was really, really wild. And there was a lot of things that happened that basically they were li- we were lied to. 
at every front. I'll never forget Bill Blair. It'd be a good clip to pull out when he had the big news conference up at headquarters. He also had a bit of a media availability in his office for special reporters. I was not only not invited, but I was told I could not go. And the, the son was told, don't send anybody if, if they're going to send me. I went down to the main part of the news conference and thought maybe they would arrest me like they did all those other people. I wasn't sure, but I thought, uh, you know, Lord knows I have to go do my job in a free country. Anyway, they had this table full of things that were out. Do you remember that? There was like fire of this and, you know, I can't remember what they all went out. And none of it was related directly to any of the incidents in G20. It was all happenstance things, people going to do a play or had different things. They were unreasonable, they were out of control, and they were never uh, dealt with appropriately. Uh, the Alvin Mukherjee, who was the chair of the police services board, apologized, but the chief uh, never did. So it's interesting, you're right, uh, excellent point. Now, what is he doing standing with all these civil libertarian or civil liberties people? You know, civil liberties is something that doesn't matter what party you're in. You should support them. You should support basic rights. And and this guy trampled them. I would put it up there with High River. And I'm going to bring up something that uh, uh, Caledonia, which, you know, y your um, old contact, your old pal, uh, Julian Fantino. Look, I, I know you you know Fantino well, but he hasn't worked out that well as a, as a federal politician. And I'm wondering if Blair's going to face the same fate you get these guys who are used to being at the top used to barking orders and everyone listening and then they got to go be the the backbench team player I, well, it hasn't worked out great for julian i'm wondering if it's going to work out great for uh, for bill blair it'll be easier for bill blair than it was for julian because bill will get the softer ride from the leftist media outside of yourself and you know there's some real media but what i see out of ottawa is a lot of the same stuff you know just repeat and record so he'll get more of that than Julian did. I don't agree with you on Julian not being effective. I think that that was a media smear campaign. And I've, I've proven that if you read on my columns who paid for the veterans uh, group that went there in the office. Oh, and and they I were know. all paid for. And so I don't take it seriously at all. Um, but I, to your point, uh, Bill Blair has skills, as does Julian. They're both basically good men. I mean, we can't say they're not. But... You know, they're also very, very, um, you're right, they're used to having this badge, this gun, and people do what they tell them to do. Bill Blair will find that now that without that, without, you know, having the power to have someone maybe follow you around or at least give the impression of that, it might be a little bit trickier, and it'll be interesting to see how it does shake out. All right, so you got, uh, you said three other or four other people running for this in Scarborough Southwest. Yeah, there's uh, there's Tim Weber. I've got the names right here. I can tell you who they are. Um, there is two or three other people. Okay, so... But, but, but anyway, you know, yeah, I, I, they're, they're local people that live in the riding. Bill Blair doesn't live in the riding, and he, he never did live in the riding. He, he, is, he does admit to being a Scarborough boy, but just not that part of town. This is a riding held by the NDP, and I looked up the, the election results from 2011 with a sitting Liberal MP in 2011, Michelle Sampson. The, the Liberals finished third. The Conservatives beat out the Liberals in Scarborough Southwest, and the New Democrats won it. So th this is going to be tough for the Liberals to take back regardless. I don't know. I mean, I think that Bill Blair can win that down there. Uh, I do think that there's a chance. It's a kind of a progressive 
part of town. It's kind of Stephen Lewis country, if you will. Um, <laughs> I think it, I, I do think he can take it. But you're right; it's not, not as uh, obviously. Uh, people like Tim Weber, and there's a guy named Michael Kemp and Michelle Serrano, and a Mohammed Sukars. They're okay. all running. They're all local people. I know their names, but I don't know them well. I don't think any of them have a chance now. Uh, but if he gets through all that, I think with the media campaign, the Toronto Star and all that stuff, the media party, as you call it, uh, you'll see him get, get there. And uh, it'll be a lot of fun when he does. Uh, and, uh, and Justin Trudeau already tipping his hand, having Bill Blair up for a media event two days after he retires as uh, chief of police. And uh, while there's still all these other candidates, that's that's a Trudeau open nomination for you right there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was better than the Eve Adams news conference, anyway. <laughs> all right. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's all a sham, uh, and it's all name recognition. And Justin likes to be around uh, big names, and, and he is here uh, with Bill Blair today. Well, I'm around a big name right now, Joe Warmington. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. All, right. All the best. You can always read Joe Warmington's columns at the TorontoSun.com. Make sure you check out my Facebook page. We'll post the occasional Joe column, Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Stick around. More to come. We don't listen to him because he's sexy, but it doesn't hurt. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. You are about to join the leader of the unofficial resistance, the rebel himself, Brian Lilly. The Liberal Party believes in uh, helping out small businesses. They're an important motor for our economy. We certainly wouldn't reverse the, uh, uh, the cut uh, to small business uh, uh, taxes. Uh, however, we do have concerns around the implementation to make sure that it's fair. There's a number of studies that have shown uh, that it disproportionately benefits, in some cases, uh, wealthier Canadians. Uh, and that's uh, one of the lenses through which the Liberal Party will make sure that, uh, that measures going forward uh, do, that they help the people who need the help and not as this budget does, uh, people who don't need the help. That was Justin Trudeau last week talking about the small business tax cut. He is saying that he he won't reverse it, but he doesn't like the way it's structured, and this is part of the bun fight going on about the federal budget right now. Welcome back to the Brian Lilly podcast. I'm, of course, Brian Lilly, and joining me on the line right now is Dan Kelly. He's the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And Dan, I saw you at the budget lockup, and you guys gave this budget an A or an A+. You're so excited about this this cut from 11% for small business corporate tax rate down to 9 that you were just effusive. So what's going on here where you've got the, the NDP and the Conservatives, they don't normally agree on um, you know taxation policy, and they're saying it's good, and then we're hearing, hold on, it might just benefit the rich. What? Yeah, you know, I did, you're certainly right. I did have a big smile on my face on Budget Day. Uh, one, of the, one of the big, big victories for small firms was a reduction in the small business corporate income tax rate, the plan to bring it down from 11 to 9% phased in over the next four years. That was good news. In fact, you know, we certainly gave the NDP huge credit. Uh, this was their proposal during the last election campaign, but, but uh, to Thomas Mulcair's credit, he renewed it and, uh, and continued to promise to reduce the rate down to exactly that, 9%. Uh, but, uh, and, and the Tories, of course, uh, tried, to, uh, tried to get out a little bit earlier on that. They did announce a phase-in, but still a very, very positive direction. And if you look at what's happened over the last couple of decades, both under the Liberals and under the Tories, 
large business corporate tax rate uh, went down. It was almost cut in half from about 28% down to 15% now. Yeah. But the small business rate has only moved a, a tiny bit. It's moved from 12% to 11%. And so we pushed for some time to try to get the government to uh, announce a, a more healthy reduction schedule and very, very pleased that they did. And, and yeah, we're, we're hoping to get the, the clarification from all parties. We've certainly made uh, contact with the federal liberals to, uh, to have them clarify their views on this. This is an issue that is being hotly debated at the provincial level, too. Some provinces moving to take away the benefit of the small business corporate tax rate from very small businesses, particularly from professionals. So it's uh, a debate that rages on. Uh, uh, I'm pleased to say that we've got uh, right now a majority of provinces moving in this direction and also um, and also two federal parties now uh, strongly endorsing it, too. Well, I, I, let me be upfront. I, I am, you know, with the demise of Sun News, uh, I, I'm out there as my own small business and in just learning the ropes on this. Uh, I'll even say that when I signed up for my bank account with Scotiabank, it, apparently I, I, I get a membership. I don't have any paperwork. I haven't signed anything, but apparently I'll get a membership with your group. But you and I have talked for years, so I'm not calling you due to that. But let's get that full disclosure out there. So I'm interested in this, and everyone keeps saying small business is the, the, um, the engine of the economy, and small businesses need to be encouraged. So why wouldn't, whether it's immediately go from 11 to 9% or by 2019, as was promised in the budget, why would you be opposed to that and say that this in some way helps wealthy Canadians, you know, this is, whether they're they're wealthy or not, you, you want a small business to be wealthy because then they can hire other people. If they, if you have a poor small business, guess what? They lay people off. Well, and, you know, just building on where you're going with this, the, the, the one thing that I guess I would, would ask all of those that are nervous about the small business corporate tax rate to consider is that the money actually has to stay in the company. It's not the, you know, it's not like the business owner, uh, benefits from that directly. They certainly might indirectly, but ultimately the business owner will have to take the money. If, if they want to benefit from that personally, they have to take the money out of the corporation. And to do that, then they expose themselves to corporate, uh, to personal income taxes or dividend taxes on top of that. So it gets taxed another time. So, you know, I, I, again, we've, we don't understand why there are so, uh, that why there are some folks that are nervous about this. We're pleased to see that most political parties and most, um, and most politicians generally are very supportive of small business. And ultimately, I do think that the federal liberals will land there too. I was happy to hear that, uh, that Mr. Trudeau said that they wouldn't look to eliminate that tax cut once it's passed. Um, but the, 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 the arguments that are used against it are that it does force businesses to stay small because you lose that benefit of about $500,000 in income. Uh, or, for example, that it... Um, uh, you you turn yourself into knots to try to to, to structure your company so that you're under that five hundred thousand dollar limit. You might break your company into smaller component parts. That's not supposed to be allowed, but some worry that that that, that there's all sorts of legal tricks that are perhaps at play. So those are some of the arguments that is that are used to to speak you know, against this credit. But I, I have to yeah. tell you, small firms create you know the vast majority of the net new jobs. Lots of research shows that uh, four out of five jobs that have been created over the last couple of decades have been in SMEs. Uh, they punch way above their weight in job creation. Sixty percent of the GDP in Canada is associated with SMEs. Fifty first percent of total employment uh, in in SMEs alone. So you know if we want to do things that are good for the country, ensuring that 
the businesses have the resources to uh, to invest, to borrow, to hire, to pay wages, uh, or give raises, those are all good things. All right, so let's talk about a bit of that there. This this idea that you're going to try and stay small so that you don't go from nine to fifteen percent. You know, look, everyone would like to keep that six percent, but if you're going to you know, make an extra $200,000 in revenue for your business, you're not going to say no because you're going to pay a little bit more in tax because you're just paying the tax on, on the amount above 500000 correct? You're, you're absolutely right. In fact, you still get it uh, above five hundred. You you still get the credit even if you're above that, but the first 500000 is taxed at the lower rate. And then unless you're above $15 million, you still get, you know, it's only the balance that would be char- exposed to that higher rate of taxation. So there's still a significant benefit for many medium-sized firms above the $500,000 in income. But, you know, most small business owners, the vast, vast majority of them would kill to grow to get $500,000 in profit. Uh, uh, though you know that's that's a that's a fairly that's a fairly so that, big undertaking it, to do that, and it's an aspirational goal. It's not five hundred thousand dollars in revenue; it's five hundred thousand dollars in profit. You got it. So, you got it. So it's it's your net income. <laughs> so for the so, this is why I think the the rewards of the of the small business corporate tax reduction, but you know ninety nine percent of it will go to businesses that are way less than five hundred thousand dollars in income. They'll go to people that are earning a profit of fifty thousand dollars per perhaps less than the average civil servant might take home. Well, yeah, let's not talk about the incomes of civil servants this week. That's, um, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, people forget that Ottawa is one of the wealthiest cities in the entire country. I want to ask you about this. I know part of the argument is that, um, and I believe this is the route Quebec went, and you were telling me that Laurel Broughton, who used to be in the Ontario government, wrote a report for another province saying, well, you don't want doctors and lawyers using this. Uh, and and they they could shelter income, but the same argument could be made for contractors. I know there's a lot of contractors on my street it, that they are they don't have full time employees, and therefore they shouldn't qualify for this. But the contractors I know are hiring out sub trades who are their own small businesses, and they'll hire out six guys at a time, and then maybe the next week they only need three, and then a week after that maybe they need ten. These guys are still creating jobs. They are still generating economic output. Why punish them? Because you don't have a full-time employee. Well, you you raise a really, really important point, and that is the world of work is changing dramatically. Uh, Gone are the days when people had one full-time job as a paid employee, and they did that for the rest of their life. Today, people move in and out of traditional employment fairly frequently, and uh, your uh, case study in that. We have people that are, you know, might work for a couple of months as a paid employee and then, you know, and then work on their own business for a few months and go back and forth between or may have a, a combination of part-time employ- paid employment and, and contract work on top of that. And, and governments really struggle to stay up with all of the new models to, uh, to provide work, to provide employment out there. Uh, and, and the small business corporate tax rate is only one policy that is available to them. It does, it is, you have to be an incorporated business, uh, to qualify for it. So it already limits those that are just, uh, you know, say, have some business income on the side through their personal routine, r- return. But it is, it is an important part of our policy. There are good and legitimate reasons why you would want small businesses to pay fewer taxes, less tax. And and one of the big ones is that smaller firms end up struggling under the weight of regulation much, much more heavily than their larger counterpart. 
a small business still has to implement the vast majority of all the rules and regulations out there. Meanwhile, they have nobody other than the business owner to take care of all of that administration. A large firm might have a department that deals with compliance or an HRVP that implements all the policies. A small business doesn't have that. That's the owner's job to do that. And so it helps them it helps equalize that uh, unlevel playing field, and also smaller firms struggle to have the same access to capital as larger firms, and this allows them to reinvest some of those dollars back into their own business. I uh, I do remember having compliance departments uh, with past employers, and it, it might be an American example, but I point to the fact that General Electric figured out that it was cheaper to hire floors of lawyers to sit, if lawyers and accountants to sit in large office buildings in Manhattan. It was cheaper to hire them than it was to pay the taxes, and they just find ways for them not to pay the taxes. Small business can't <laughs> afford that. They sure can, and they can't shift their they can't shift their income overseas to try to find lower rates of taxation. They struggle to qualify for lots of the tax credit programs or subsidy programs that often large businesses are lining up to get. Uh, so the small, the, you know, what we've said, and I think what what most people that uh, that want to see a, a lighter regulatory and tax burden on Canadians feel is lower the rates of taxation available to uh, to us and let us let us succeed or fail based on on that don't uh, don't try to keep us with high high tax rates and then bribe us back with our own money uh, through all sorts of subsidy schemes all right dan kelly is the president of the canadian federation of independent business dan thanks for joining me today anytime you're listening to the brian lilly podcast check brian out at facebook.com slash brian lilly He's hated in official Ottawa. Love by you. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. Welcome back to the Brian Lilly Podcast. One of the first people I interviewed when I went to work for Sun Media, and I, I unfortunately, I don't think I ever had the chance to interview him on, on TV. It just our schedules never worked out, but... I interviewed Bill Gardner on his book, The Trouble with Canada Still, and wrote about it for the papers. Well, just as Sun News was about to shut down, I got a, a new book on my desk, and it's called The Great Divide, Why Liberals and Conservatives Will Never, Ever Agree. And I'd asked my producer, let's try and book him this time. Let's get him. He's got a new book out. This will be good. We'll talk to Bill Gardner about this. And uh, I was always getting emails saying, Why aren't you interviewing Bill Gardner? Well, Sun News shut down. His book came out the next week, and I emptied out my office that week, and all of the books were just thrown into my basement. And I was ignoring them until I needed to set up my my new office here. And my son, my 14-year-old, about-to-be-15-year-old son, picked up The Great Divide one day, and I guess he'd been reading it for a couple of days before I figured it out because he started coming up and asking me questions. So that reminded me I should give Bill a call. Bill Gardner joins me now from uh, just outside Toronto, right, Bill? Yes, King City, outside Toronto, yeah. Beautiful spot up there that you've got. I uh, want to ask you about this one because there's. I've looked through the book. You know, I'm fighting a 15, almost 15-year-old 15 for it, but I've looked through the book, and, and you go through and you say, 
this is more than just a partisan divide. This is a worldview divide. Do you think most people see it that way, or is it? how does it come about? Is it something we feel in our guts? What? Well, um, <clears throat> first of all, I'm glad to hear your son is interested in the book. That's a, <laughs> that, make, that makes my day. Um, secondly, I, I guess uh, I should say this to your listeners. That this book is not about party politics. It's about divided worldviews. And uh, the image I use is of a man uh, standing on a street on a beautiful day, and suddenly this huge gash opens up on the road, and buildings start toppling all around him, and he says, oh my gosh, it's an earthquake. But of course, that's not the earthquake. It's the consequences of the earthquake. The real earthquake is in the tension between the geological forces way below the ground that he can't see, but that an expert, say, could explain to him. Well, this book uh, it really is about the same sort of thing. It's about the tension between the ideological forces uh, that we can't see. And the object of the book is to explain them to readers, uh, to help them articulate their feelings, because you know, one of the things that really spurred me to write this book was my upset over the last couple of decades with the uh, growing vitriol and vituperation that you would tend to witness almost anywhere. For example, you go to a dinner party with family and friends and so on, um, and everybody knows there's about 15 or 20 topics that simply no one is going to raise. Be why? Because they're afraid of outrage. We can't say they're afraid of opposing arguments because they usually are not very clear arguments. And the purpose of the book, and not to be immodest about it, is to help supply both sides of this divide with the arguments that underlie um, their, their, their outrage and, uh, and their silence, so that they can articulate them. Uh, I got upset with the idea that our society is becoming infantilized by this fear, and this uh, uh, basically it's a fear of debate. It's a fear of and almost an anger that you see generated around the table in people who get very anxious that someone's going to um, defeat them in, um, in an argument. So instead of going to clear, rational debate, they go to emotion. Outrage being the most favorite, the most favorite, my drop-down card on that score. Well, you know, I've uh, I've I've witnessed this on on campuses, and we've all seen the ridiculous stories. But you're right; even amongst adults that have left that special place called the campus, this goes on. I, I've had people say they won't debate me because, well, I, I don't get angry and I I, I don't get emotional enough. <laughs> but yeah. I, I think that's a good thing if if we're we're going to engage, and and maybe on maybe maybe you'll convince me that I'm wrong on a certain point. But we're not going to do that if we're just yelling past each other, because that's what you're doing. You're not yelling at each other. You're yelling past each other, really. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, sometimes when I give public speeches, well, often actually, someone will stand up and say, "Mr. Gardner, I'm outraged by what you've been saying," and I look them right in the eye, and I say, "Well, you couldn't be more outraged than I am. Now, what's your point?" <laughs> you know, and if they're half intelligent, which they usually are, they get it. And honestly, it's like watching air come out of a balloon. They kind of settle down, and they say, "Okay, I see. You can't deal with my emotions. You want a fact or a principle that we can discuss and debate." And I said, "Yeah, because just as you said, Brian, you you may be right, I may be wrong, but it may be the other way around, and we're not going to know that unless we come to grips with the." Uh, with uh, something uh, debatable that you can put on the table. 
One of the things that I noted in the book, you do have a lot of tables going through, and as you talk about issues, you bring out tables and you try and show the different viewpoints. But as you said, you're not talking about party viewpoints because some people, I think, will read your book and uh, they will look at it and say, "Well, well, wait a minute, I'm a conservative, but I agree with what's in that liberal side or... They might on you know go the other way, because you're not talking about where the parties stand. You're talking about classical philosophical worldviews. Well, that's right, and I, you know, I've said before in some of my other writings that um, you know political parties can be quite distressing because often they get involved in what I call prostitution politics, by which I mean they will basically um, tell you what you want to hear if they think they can get a vote for it. Uh, a lot of it is unprincipled. Uh, but this book is different. It's trying to reach uh, beneath all that, as I say, the the rubble of the political earthquake, and 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 to f- fish out the the real uh, tensions that are under uh, underlying all this. That's why, for example, there are eight themes in the book: uh, a theme on human nature, on uh, reason, on democracy, on freedom, on equality and inequality, and so on. And in each one of these uh, chapters on the, the main themes. At the end of them, as you pointed out, there's a table where the readers can find out for themselves where they stand uh, as between a liberal or a conservative position. At the end of the book, of course, all of these themes kind of come together in a section which deals with the issues, and the issues are homosexuality and gay marriage, which are still very hot in many uh, liberal democracies of the Western world, the issue of abortion, which uh, even though... Uh, the left likes to think it's been taken care of and will go away. It's never going to go away. And now we have on the table the issue of euthanasia, which our own Supreme Court has just been meddling with. And at the end of each of these chapters also, you can look at the table. The tables are, are titled, Where Do You Stand? They're asking, where, where do you stand? And it is quite surprising how many people call me or stop me and say, I've been reading your book, and I'm a bit shocked. And I say, why? They say, well, I was talking one way and walking another. As you, know? as you often find. As you often find. And, uh, of course, this is a, a sword which cuts both ways. But uh, what I usually find is that most people are, are sort of talking left but living right with their family and their friends and their sort of uh, personal moral positions and things like that. But when it comes to public discussion, they often take the sort of leftist view, uh, which is interesting, too. Uh, I was on a uh, show with a TVO broadcaster last week, and he said, Mr. Gardner, he said, you've been, you've been writing about these things for 25 years or more. How do you feel about the whole country going the other direction from the one in which you'd like to see it go? And I said, you know, I feel like I've been standing on a rock the whole time in a leftward drifting sea. And in the distance, I can see this ship in the fog, and I can hear voices. And you know what the voices they're saying? They're saying, look, look, over there, there's a man drifting to the right. (laughs) And that's the way I feel, and that's what I think has happened. Well, some people say, well, you see, that's your problem. You're a dinosaur. You haven't moved. And I say, well, is it a problem? Because I feel that a sensible country has got to have a set of principles which become the kind of uh, groundwork or foundation of common life. And if we simply drift away from those principles over time, I think we we better 
start getting really concerned because you know, well, where where are we going? You know, I, I was reading the Supreme Court decision on the prayer at City Council on in Saguenay, and I kept telling people, look, you can be for or against prayer at a, at a public meeting like that. And I'm of the opinion, if, if you don't want to pray, I don't think anyone should be forcing you, coercing you. I mean, it's a very personal thing to decide whether or not you're going to pray. But the reasoning of the Supreme Court that that you had to get away from that, that this was banned, was because of freedom of religion. And they admitted that nowhere in the Canadian Charter or the Quebec Charter does it forbid what's going on, but due to their evolving interpretation of freedom of religion, it would be banned. Yeah. So th- that's the drift that you're talking about. It is the drift, and um, as you had just pointed out, simply by raising this uh, example, um, and as I do um, suggest in, in The Great Divide, uh, more than suggest, I describe uh, what I consider to be a lamentable situation <clears throat> for modern uh, Canadians, which is that ever since the Charter of Rights and Freedoms came into being in 1982, I think we've become an increasingly infantilized nation <clears throat> in the sense that uh, our representatives in Parliament are simply not going to debate or discuss the key moral issues of human life if they don't have to, because they figure they're just going to get in trouble for it, get somebody shouting at them or outraged. So what do they do? They test it on the court. They run it by the judges or they run it by the clerks to see what the judges might think before they go anywhere. In other words, uh, and this is not a stretch, I think, to say that, you know, during the colonial period of Canada, it was judges in England uh, who made the most important, important decisions about moral life for us as colonists, because we didn't have we didn't have responsible government um, before before the 1840s, 1850s period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I make the argument that, in a, in a sense, we've become recolonized because these important decisions are still being made by judges rather than by us, except instead of being seated in England, they're seated here. Yeah. Well, it's, it's sad to watch politicians consistently say, and I remember the 2004 election, all the big issues... I was out for Paul Martin calling the uh, the election, you know, visiting Rideau Hall, and he came out to do his news conference, and all the big issues, he just had to say, I'm sorry, that's before the courts. And some of them he had put there well, himself, there and, and, and he's not alone in doing that. Uh, I'm going to have to wrap it up there, Bill, but I'll tell you, my son is currently in the chapter on freedom, and he said to me the other day, uh, Daddy, I'm not sure that I fully understand freedom, uh, because, well, maybe I'm, I'm just a teenager who spends all day at school being told what to do by his teachers and then comes home to be told what to do by his parents. I said, you'll figure it out one day, son. Yeah, good. <laughs> Thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time today. The book is called The Great Divide. I fully recommend checking it out, and we will make sure to post links to all the different social sites. Bill Gardner from Toronto. Join the rebellion. Find more Brian Lilly at www.therebel.media.